I invite you to open up your copy of God's Word to Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one there in the pew rack in front of you. Uh, We've been walking through the book of Hebrews together here at Bloomfield Baptist Church and come to a point where the writer's been helping to distinguish between the Old and New Covenants. That Old Covenant is a reference to the Mosaic Covenant that God made with His people through Moses during the great Exodus. And now we see there's a new covenant, a covenant that's made through faith in Jesus Christ. So the old covenant was written on tablets of stone. The new covenant is written on the heart through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so as the writer's helping the Hebrews and helping us to understand this new covenant, he's made it very clear this new covenant comes to us not through the blood of sacrifices like we see in the Old Testament of goats and bulls, but of the blood of Christ is how we receive the new covenant promises. And so we'll continue to look at this as we look at Hebrews 9, verses 15 through 22. And so out of reverence for God's word, if you're able to stand, if you would, as I read this text for us. This is what God's word says, speaking of Christ. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You would pray with me. Father, we do ask as we look to your word today that we might truly understand that we are transgressors, that we are sinners that all have sinned and fall short of your glory, and that the wages of that sin is death. But Lord, you have made a way through your Son. There there is forgiveness available, but it comes through the blood of Jesus in no other way. This is a truth that we fight back against. This is our truth that our flesh cries out against, and yet this is the truth we need. And so I pray that you would press it into our hearts today, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Ten years ago, there were two brothers walking the streets of Budapest, Hungary. They were broke, they were penniless, and they were starving. And so, they were able to get together some money for food by digging through people's garbage. And as they dug through the garbage... Occasionally they would find some junk there someone had thrown out, but, but something with a little value to it, and they'd find someone else who would buy that junk that they got out of the garbage. And, and this is essentially how they lived. 
They were able to get by day after day and find just a little bit of food by selling junk they found in the garbage. They lived in a cave that was outside the city of Budapest. That's where they made their home. And it was in that cave that a group of charity workers found them. They had been looking for these brothers for some time. They had been working together with a team of lawyers from Germany because these two brothers were the sole heirs to their long-lost grandmother's estate. You can imagine the shock for these two brothers when they found out that one day they were digging through the trash and the next day they were now heirs to a fortune worth about $5 million. And imagine the change that would make in someone's life. So to go from digging through the trash, living in a cave, to all of a sudden overnight you're a millionaire. You've received this great inheritance. It would change everything about these brothers' lives. As we come to Hebrews chapter 9 and the 15th verse, we find an inheritance being spoken of. We find the writer here telling us that there is an inheritance that we receive very different than one from a long-lost relative. This is an inheritance that comes to us through faith in our Lord Jesus. And unlike an inheritance in this world that can be spent and can be lost, this is one that is eternal. It's one that will never fade. It's one that never loses value. And it's one that comes to those who have faith in Jesus Christ. It is secured for us by the blood of Jesus. And yet, my fear for us today, friends, is that while for those of us in Christ, we, we have this inheritance available for us, my, my fear is that for many of us, we're still digging through the trash. We're, we're still living in caves. We, we don't fully understand and appreciate what it is that we have received through our faith in Jesus. That's the dilemma I believe the writer comes to with the Hebrew people. These are folks who had placed their faith in Christ, some who were considering certainly placing their faith in Christ, but they were being tempted to walk away from this faith in Jesus and to walk back to the Judaism of their past. And the writer here is trying to press in and say, that don't you understand what it is that you have in Jesus? Now, don't you understand the riches that are available through your faith in Christ? And so I think that just like they did not fully understand, we to do can struggle with that. And so I want us to consider what it is we have in Jesus, through Jesus, what this inheritance is as we walk through this passage today. And we'll do so with that first point starting there in your outline. Now this reminder here from the text that God calls us to trust in Jesus. God calls us to trust in Jesus. Before we can receive this inheritance, before we become heirs to the promise, that the first thing that happens is God issues a call to us. He initiates with us to invite us into His family. Notice there in the text, verse 15, the writer says, Therefore Jesus, He is the mediator of a new covenant. And we've talked about this before, how God gave shadows, He gave pictures of, of mediators throughout the scripture. So for example, with Moses, Moses was a mediator. And Moses would go up the mountain on behalf of the people to go before God on behalf of the people to receive God's word on behalf of the people. And then he would go down the mountain on behalf of God and take that word to the people. He was the mediator, but he was pointing us towards a greater mediator. That the fullness of all things would come in Jesus. That's why the writer here says that Jesus 
He is the mediator of a new covenant. Well, how does he do that? Well, the writers helped us to see that in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. He refers to Jesus as the apostle and the high priest of our confession. And an apostle is someone who is sent out. So we read about the, the apostles in the scripture. These were men who were sent out from Jesus. They were disciples. They were going out. They were messengers. An apostle is sent out. But it says also that Jesus is the high priest. And we've looked rather exhaustively now at that role of high priest. How the high priest would go into the tabernacle and go into the most holy place. And they would go there on behalf of the people. They would make an offering for themselves and for the sins of the people. They would go before God on behalf of the people. And so you can see how Jesus as the apostle, one sent to us from God, and the high priest, one who goes to God on our behalf, how Jesus then is the perfect picture of our true and better mediator. And he is the one, the writer tells us here, who's the mediator of the new covenant. And not just a mediator, he is the mediator. He's the only mediator. And in the past, these were all shadows and pictures, and they pointed us towards the reality of Christ. And that's why we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And so there's no other way for us to receive revelation from God, and there's no other way for us to go into the presence of God than through Jesus Christ. That's why the writer of Hebrews makes it clear in the first chapter that Jesus is the final and full revelation from God. And so He is the mediator, and as such, God calls us to place our trust in Him and not in anyone else. Calls us to place our trust in Him. Notice here He says, therefore He's the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And he refers to this calling that we have. We also saw that earlier in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1 refers to this heavenly calling that we have. And this is significant in understanding what it means to have a right relationship with God. That, that God is the initiator of this relationship. That God is the one who calls down to us from heaven and invites us into this relationship. Because we live in a culture and a context where we tend to think about things from a man-centered perspective instead of a God-centered perspective. And so we often think about faith from a man-centered perspective, that, that faith is something we just decide one day we're going to choose. That, that we're the ones who call upon God, and then God just arranges things the way we ask Him to arrange them. And yet the Scripture says that very differently. He says those who are called, God is the one who does the calling. God is the one who initiates, and our responsibility then is to respond to that call but he's the one who calls out. Now, does that mean that, that man can never call on God? Well, absolutely not. And we see that the unbelieving man calls out to God all the time, and in Scripture we see that the believer is to call out to God in prayer, but so often for the, the unbeliever, and sadly the believer too, our calls to God are usually calls of desperation. They're, they're usually calls in the midst of suffering and trial. We find ourselves in a situation where we're helpless, we can't do anything else, and then in the last moment we turn to God and call out to Him. It's the picture we have of the Hebrews in the Old Testament there, hundreds of years in slavery, and they call out to God, God, just get us out of this. But God desires more than to just get us out of this. God desires to have a relationship with us. 
He calls to us. He wants us to be in that right relationship. But that right relationship cannot happen if we will not place our trust in Jesus because Jesus is the one mediator. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. We cannot come to the Father except through Him. And this requires us to trust. The call to trust has always been a call in the Scripture. Proverbs 3, beginning in verse 5, a familiar passage. We're called to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and lean not on our own understanding and all of our ways to acknowledge Him and He will make our path straight. And then he continues, be not wise in your own eyes. That's the gravitational pull of the sinful heart. I know better. How dare you tell me? I know better. That is the cry of our heart. It's no different than we see in the garden. Didn't God say? We, We twist the Word of God. We act based on our emotions, our feelings. And yet, what is the call of Scripture? It is to place our trust fully in the Lord. And in order for us to come into this right relationship with God, it begins with placing our trust in Christ. That's why in Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he calls on the people to repent, to trust in Jesus. We read in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 37, of this great sermon that Peter gave, filled with the Holy Spirit towards these people, that it says, now when they, these people who heard the sermon, the gospel, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So they were not just sitting idly thinking, Peter, we we got places to be now. Are you done yet? (laughs) They they weren't scribbling on their sermon notes. Where are we going to eat lunch today? None of you would ever do this, I know. Uh, Where are we going to eat lunch today? I'm not sure. How are you? How are you? They weren't tweet booking or FaceTiming or whatever else on their phones. They, they, They heard the Word of God proclaimed. And the Scripture says they were cut to the heart they were so pierced in their heart they knew they needed to respond but they didn't know what to do i mean have you ever been in a situation like that where you knew something needed to happen but you you just didn't know what to do maybe you offended someone maybe you got in an argument with your spouse maybe you got in an argument with a friend a family member and you realized you were wrong and you just wanted to make it right and you say something like just tell me what to do to make it right here the people hear the gospel and what do they say tell us what to do to make it right and what does peter say peter said to them repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It says repent. And that word means literally turn around. Go the other way. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. I'm sure I've shared this illustration before, but I've been here nine years. You'll hear these on replay over time. I had a good friend who was in uh, Smoky Mountains with his family. At that time, his son was very young, and you've been there in Gatlinburg and just the busy street there, and there's stuff all around. And my friend Hank just turned for a moment, and when he did, his young boy kind of pulled out of his grasp, and he turned, and, and his child was just running straight towards the road. 
and, and he saw as his son was running straight into the street, he, he saw this car just burning its way up the street, just flying up the street, and he just could picture in his mind this, this collision course. And, and he just, with everything in him, he just yelled out, Stop! He said half the people on that street stopped. <laughs> but the important one was his boy, who knew his father's voice. And he heard it, and he stopped. And then he looked at his son, and he gently said, Son, come back to me. And his son turned around and came to me. Friends, that is a picture of repentance. You and I, lost in our sin, are running full steam ahead towards that which will ultimately destroy us. And our Father in heaven calls out, Stop! Turn! And repent! Come to me. Peter says, if you want to experience what it is to be in a right relationship with God, then what you need to do is to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. You need a new allegiance. You need a new life. You need a new heart. Turn and come to Jesus. And so what we see is God calls. He shouts out. He says, stop. And he says, come to me. And we do that through placing our trust in Jesus. And when we do that, then we experience this forgiveness of sin. Point two, God forgives those who trust in Jesus. Continuing in verse 15, he says that Jesus is the mediator and, and those who are called will receive this promised eternal inheritance. We'll come back to that in a moment. He says because since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So he says, if we will turn, if we will trust, we can experience this redemptive work. God redeems us. And we've talked before about this word redeem. It means to release from bondage. He makes us free. It's that great picture we see in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress of Pilgrim. When he starts out on this journey, he's got this enormous burden on his back. And it's not released until he comes to the cross of Calvary. And that's what happens in the life of everyone who comes to faith in Christ. This burden of sin can be released. We can be forgiven. He says here, He redeems us from our transgressions. Paul says it very similarly in Ephesians 1.7. He says, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So to be redeemed is to be forgiven. And what are we forgiven of? We are forgiven of our trespasses, of our transgressions. A transgression is when we go outside of the given boundaries. A transgression is God has said, here are the boundary markers, here's my word and here's my will, and if you will function within this, I will bless you. That This is where you need to be. But we trespass, we transgress when we go outside of those boundaries. And when we do that, we sin against God. And we live in a culture that says, we'll just move the boundaries. <laughs> Surely we can do this now, we can do this now, and you know, I'm not hurting anybody. No, no. God firmly says, no, here, here's where you need to be. So go back to Genesis. God creates boundaries in the garden. He says to Adam and Eve in the sanctuary of paradise. You can eat of any tree here, but here's the boundary. 
Don't, don't eat of that tree. He says to him clearly, you have the opportunity, you have dominion in this arena, you, you can eat of anything, I'll give you anything you need. This is for your good and for your human flourishing. Here's what you have. Do not go outside of this boundary and go over here. And what do they do? They go outside of that boundary. They sin against God. They trespass. They transgress the command of God. And that is the pattern we see throughout the Scripture. We see in the Scripture, David, God anoints him as king. God blesses David. God gives David parameters and boundaries. A parameter and boundary we see that goes all the way back to the garden. Physical intimacy in a relationship is to be between a man and a woman in a covenant of marriage. David is under that. We are under that today. But what does David do? Scripture says there's a time when kings would go to war. He didn't go to war. His people were at war. And he goes to a rooftop and he sees a woman that he desires and he enters into an adulterous relationship with her and he goes outside of those boundaries. He transgresses. He trespasses. He sins against God. And what's the consequence of David's sin? The child that he has with this woman in this adulterous relationship dies and his kingdom's never the same. What's the consequence of Adam and Eve's sin in the garden that they are then removed from the presence of God and death enters and things are not the same? And friends, it's the same with us today. We transgress. God says to us, here are your boundaries. And we push against them. And we go outside of them. And to our great shame, we try to spiritualize it. And we try to somehow say it's okay. But according to God, it's not. And there's a consequence of our sin. The Scripture says the wages of sin is death. We have transgressed. We have trespassed. And apart from the grace of God, there is no hope for us. But notice the good news of the Gospel that we're given. That if we will trust in Christ, He will forgive us. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, transgressors, trespassers, while we were eating the forbidden fruit, while we were in the immoral relationship, while we were disobeying the commands of God, Christ died for us. The good news of the Gospel. If it's not good news to you, then you don't understand the Gospel. Because He reached down while you and I were in the pit. And while we were digging trash out of the rubbish. And while we were living in our sin. And He snatched us out of it. And He made us new. He didn't just change our circumstances. He changed our heart. Hey, he didn't just change our behavior. He didn't just say, clean it up. No, He gave us a new heart with new desires. And He forgave us. Gave us. I mean, have you ever had a situation where you you hurt somebody you loved or you offended someone and and you just were begging them to forgive you and they did? I mean, I realize people hold things against people all the time, but a situation where where you where somebody just said, Hey, I, I forgive you, and you you just felt that burden lifted. That was probably over one thing. There's not a person on this planet who knows the darkness of your heart. 
and every wicked thing you've ever thought or done. I don't even know. I've forgotten stuff. You've forgotten things. God knows. We have transgressed, we have trespassed, and yet what does God do? He demonstrates His love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And He offers us forgiveness. And with that forgiveness, He invites us to the table. I mean, did you, did you grasp what we were singing earlier? Once enemies, and now seated at the table. I mean, imagine that for a second. We're coming up on Thanksgiving. Imagine that you had a situation in your family where someone did something just awful. Let's say somebody killed somebody you love. And not only did they do that, they just, they just did it to other people. They were just an awful person. And you show up to mom and Paul's house or wherever you go for Thanksgiving and you sit down at the table and you notice there's an extra place sitting there and you say, well, who, who's that for? And they say, oh, that's for so-and-so that killed your cousin." I'd imagine a whole range of emotions would go through you. We, we don't think of Thanksgiving as a time when we sit down at the table with our enemies. Now, we're not talking in-laws and stuff like that. I mean, real enemies. People who have done horrible things. We were once enemies. We were once in rebellion towards God. And now we are seated at His table. And not just as a guest as an heir. He's made us co-heirs with Christ. He has brought us into the family. In John's Gospel, we read it this way, John chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive Him, receive Jesus, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will, or of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. He has made us His children so that we might cry out to Him, Abba, Father. We're children of the King now. We're at the table of the King and we are there because we have been forgiven. And as a result of that, as a result of being in this family, well, now we receive the inheritance. Point three there in your outline, God promises an eternal inheritance to those who trust in Jesus. He snatches us out of the pit, out of the cave. He, he gives us the riches. Verse 15, that, that we who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Here he incorporates this, this language of a will, a last will and testament. Now that Greek word for will can also be a word for covenant. And so what the writer here is saying is that the riches that we receive through the new covenant, we, we can think of these things as a last will and testament. That this is what Jesus has given to us through His death, burial, and resurrection. In fact, he speaks of the death component of that. In verse 17, he says, A will takes effect only at death since it's not enforced as long as the one who made it is alive. So, so we see this all the time. People who are alive and maybe they've got that inheritance and they kind of dangle it out there and you, you want to stay in the will, you better do this. Or, or people who try to get into a will and wills can change and inheritance can, can be shifted around while the person's alive. But once they're dead, it's set. I'm sure you can contest it, you can argue over it, but, but they're not going to change their mind. They, they, they can't change their mind. So he's saying here, when, that, when the person dies, then that will, it takes effect. Now notice two things he says about the inheritance then that takes place. 
First, he says this is available to all who will place their trust in Jesus. He references here people who transgressed the first covenant. Again, there are a number of covenants in the Scripture. This, I believe, is referring to the Mosaic covenant that God gave to Moses there on Mount Sinai where he said, if the people do this, I'll bless them. If they do this, I'll curse them. Here are my commandments. You need to obey them. And the people didn't. And that's why many of them fell in the wilderness, never made it into the land of promise. But there were some who made it into the land of promise. There were some who walked by faith and not by sight. There are some that we see recorded in Hebrews chapter 11. So the question that often comes then is, well, how does that work? I mean, we understand this side of the cross, how we're saved. We're looking back and we're placing our faith in Jesus who died for our sins and He saves us. But, but what about all these people in biblical history and looking, looking forward to the cross? How, how were they saved? Because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. Come back when we're in Hebrews 11. We'll talk more about it. But, but, but I think the, the real quick answer in what we see here is they, they were looking forward to the promise. I mean, in the garden, Adam and Eve were given a promise. Genesis 3.15, uh, a serpent's head's going to be crushed by the Redeemer. A Redeemer's going to come. We can fully understand and see that now. But, but they put faith in the promise as best they understood it. They were looking ahead to what would take place, to this Redeemer. And so that the only way to be saved is through placing trust in the revealed Word of God. And here we see God has revealed to us that, that Christ, we need to place our trust in Christ. And so it's available, this inheritance, to all who will trust in Jesus. Second, we see this inheritance is eternal. It lasts forever. There's no expiration date. <laughs> I don't know how things work in your house, but we go through kind of a cycle in our house where it's time to make a Costco run. And we're about there right now. And so I start digging through the pantry and digging through the refrigerator and, you know, kind of those corners you don't go to so often. And I don't eat a lot of salads. I, I, that's shocking, I know. But I pulled out a thing of salad dressing the other day and I looked at the expiration date. I thought, ooh, man, I'm throwing that out. And looking through some cans the other day, found some. I was like, yeah, that's, 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 it's expired. It means that it, its shelf life is over. You don't want to eat that. You don't want to get near that. It's probably going to do something bad to you. It's expired. It's not good anymore. It's got, a, it's got a date of expiration. It was good for this period, and now it's not anymore. Friends, do you understand that according to the Word of God that He has revealed to us, there is no expiration date on your salvation? It doesn't go bad. It doesn't get corrupted. It doesn't sit too long and it's no good anymore. There, there's no expiration date on that which God has secured through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. Now, if the security is based on us, it was never good to begin with. If it's based on us, we are fickle and we change. Again, if we could lose our salvation, we would. But what we see here is this reminder of what has been secured through the blood of Jesus Christ. That we can recognize eternal life is eternal. It does not end. And we receive it, the Scripture tells us, the moment that we become believers. Eternal life is not something waiting for us when we die. It's something that becomes realized for us when we place our trust in Jesus. 
John's Gospel tells us in John 3.36, whoever believes in the Son has, not will get, not one day, but has now presently eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Has, present tense, that word means he's taken hold of it, he's received possession of it, and it does not end. So what about losing your salvation? What about that, that conversation so often people have? Well, I'm just not sure. Can a person lose their salvation? I believe the answer from Scripture is absolutely they cannot lose it. I'll take you to one place this morning. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 11. And this is... The testimony. That, that means this is the truth. That this is the word, this is the testimony. Listen, listen up. This, this is the testimony. You, you want to know something? Then listen up. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. Not He holds it for us. No, He gives it to us. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know it. You don't have to doubt it. You don't have to wonder about it. And yet we do. I mean, have you ever doubted your salvation? I think that's a very common Christian experience. There's there are things that go through my mind sometimes while I am preaching that make me doubt my salvation. And you might think, oh man, that sounds bad. Well, you want to put a speaker to your head and tell us what you're thinking right now? That there are things that we think, there are responses that, that we are tempted to give at times, that there are, there are longings that come into our mind at times. We, we want to go back to the cave and back to the pit, and then we sit there and wonder, well, I don't want to go back to that. And yet there's this, this sinful reminder of our past that may have us think, am I even saved? And God says, well, let me give you something. Let me help you know something. Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? If you believe in the name of the Son of God, you can know. And then he goes on. He says, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. That this is not some garbage prosperity gospel verse that if you go out there and ask for Ferrari, God's going to give it to you. What does he say? If we ask anything according to his will. You know what verse in the Bible says that God's will is for you to be healthy and wealthy? Garbage one, one. Doesn't say it. But you know what it does say? His desire is that we be saved. Jesus went to the cross and, and purchased our salvation. That, that all who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. If we will confess Romans 10 with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. Romans 10, 13. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
That's his desire. That's his will. We, we respond to that call that he issues in faith and repentance. And we can know and we can have confidence that we are his children. Yeah, pastor, but what about so-and-so? They, they did all that and they walked the aisle and they don't have anything to do with our church or any church or Jesus now. Scripture talks about that. 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were never of us. If they'd been of us, they would have stayed, but they went out that it might become clear they were never of us. Jesus says what? You'll know a tree by its price tag? No. By the picture on the label, what it's supposed to look like? No. You'll know a tree by its fruit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Against these things there is no law. The fruit of the flesh is evident. Time tells the story. I do not base my assurance, my security, and my salvation on a prayer I prayed in a dorm room in 1991. I base my faith and my assurance and my confidence in the revealed Word of God and in the fruit of salvation that God has brought into my life. And I am reminded often of what a desperate sinner I am and how desperately I need the gospel. The scripture tells us we can know. And we know because we have the Son. And we have the Son through the blood of Christ. And that brings us to this last concluding point. Our calling, our forgiveness, our eternal inheritance, all of these things are secured through the blood of Jesus. That's what the writer keeps talking about. That's what the rest of this passage is about. Verse 18, the first covenant put into effect by blood, but the blood of goats and bulls cannot take away sin. God makes that clear. But it was a shadow. It was pointing towards a greater and a better sacrifice that would come through the spotless Lamb of God through Jesus Christ Himself. That's why blood is central to the Hebrews' worship because it was pointing directly towards the blood of Jesus. A reminder, there was one mediator in one way, and it was through Christ and through the blood of Christ. And that's why he concludes in verse 22 by saying, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It is a sobering reminder. There's no other way except through the blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. This is the uniform testimony of Scripture. And this is what made Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's. Now that picture we have from the first sin in the garden until the cross, that when there is sin, it must be atoned for by blood. It pointed us directly towards the cross of Christ that we might fully understand we can be forgiven. And therefore, we can have security. We can be secure in our calling because it's brought to us through the blood of Jesus. We can be secure in our forgiveness because it's bought with the blood of Jesus. And we can be secure today in our eternal inheritance because of the blood of Jesus. Are you trusting in Christ? Let's stand together as we consider that question and as we go to God in prayer.